Good to see you. Uh, this morning we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to congratulate all of you on reaching the end of the second letter to the Corinthians. We started this journey on January 2nd, 2022 in 1 Corinthians. Paul's going to end this epistle much as he's been doing by defending his apostleship. Um, he's going to be warning the Corinthians. He's going to be exhorting them, but also demonstrating his love for them. Let's go ahead and read the chapter. This will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. Now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear proved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may, become, that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification, and not for destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of, be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Looking at verse 1, this will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Paul repeats what he wrote in chapter 12, verse 14. He's coming for a third visit. His first visit is found in Acts 18, when the church was founded. The second visit is sometime between 1 Corinthians and the second letter that we have before us. This upcoming third visit does not have a happy ring to it. Paul quotes part of Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he knew that this was a heavy thing to say because it referred to judgment. As Paul readies himself to go to Corinth, he wants there to be no mistake about the intention. He intends to set the Corinthians and the church in Corinth in order. Verse 2, I've told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. The English Standard Version translates this verse as, I warned those who sinned before and all the others and I warn them now while absent. 
as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. At this point, it's almost as, as though Paul is exasperated with these Corinthian Christians. He's addressed the matter of sin before. In 1 Corinthians 5, he called out sexual, sexual sin in the church. And he, called, and he called out those who accepted it. He addressed sin during his second visit. And now he's addressing it again while absent. Paul is serious about sin, as we all should be. Paul warned them. Sin grieved Paul because he had the Spirit of Christ in him. James tells us why sin is not to be trifled with. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Looking back to chapter 12, Paul will mourn for the unrepentant upon this third visit. You might be familiar with the terms repentance and unrepentance. At times they're used without much thought being given to their meaning. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia, which means a change of mind in regards to sinful deeds, whether they're thoughts or actions. Remember that Christ taught that thoughts are equivalent, sinful thoughts are equivalent to sinful actions. Repentance is when a person sees their sin and changes their thinking to align with God's. Unrepentance is the opposite. An unrepentant person sees their sin and they don't care about the separation that it brings from God and his righteousness. Paul knew that those in Corinth who were unrepentant would have to be dealt with, and it would have to be harshly, albeit in love. It's important to note that repentant, repentance is not behavior modification. If a person changes their outward actions, it can be moralism or, at worst, legalism. Think of the Pharisees who practice legalism. Jesus, referring to them, said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but the inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. True repentance begins in the mind and it transforms the heart. This is what Paul wants for the Corinthian church. Paul writes, those who have sinned and all the rest. Those who have sinned are the people he mentioned in chapter 12. He wrote, for I fear, lest when I come I shall not find you as I wish, that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness of which they have practiced. When Paul writes all the rest, he's referring to those who condone sinful actions. If you recall in the first epistle to the Corinthians, there were those who were caught up in sexual immorality, and the church condoned their behavior. And they were puffed up about it. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Paul told them, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Sin in the church does not just affect the one committing the sin, but it affects the whole body. 
and therefore it must be addressed. Paul writes, he will not spare them. This is not an idle threat. Paul is fully prepared to use his apostolic authority to discipline the church. Verse 3, since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. Paul is forced to wind down this letter, much as he began it, by defending his apostleship. The Corinthians, as we've addressed throughout this epistle, have been led astray and deceived by false teachers who questions Paul's apostleship and his authority. They taught, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. The Corinthians thought that Paul ought to have been a mighty man, powerful and eloquent in speech, but that's not the kind of man God chose. Christ chose a weak vessel to demonstrate his power and authority over his church. In the first verse of this letter, Paul presents himself as apostle as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. As an apostle through Christ, the Corinthians can be assured that Christ is speaking through Paul. And we can be assured that Christ speaks to us through his scriptures. Paul reminds the church of this by calling to memory that Christ is not weak toward them, nor in dealing with them. Instead, he is mighty and powerful in them. Jesus Christ is mighty to save and to sanctify. And the Corinthians knew it, even being what we would call a carnal Christian. This holds true today. Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is mighty to save and to sanctify. There is no one who is too far gone to be saved. Redemption and sanctification are available to all who place their trust in Jesus Christ. Church, we can be tempted to think that others have it all figured out. We think that we're just doomed to be a failure for Christ. But not so. We may stumble, and we might fall. But if we keep our eyes on Christ, trusting in him, and know that he will be faithful and just to forgive our sins, he will leave the 99 to bring you home. If you ever feel like a carnal Christian, or perhaps a Corinthian, have faith, your redemption draws nigh. Through Christ, your story on earth has a majestic ending and a glorious new beginning in eternity with him. Keep the faith, hold fast, and you will experience the might of Christ in your life. Verse 4, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. This verse is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was crucified. He died on the cross. Jesus, speaking about his life in John 10, said, I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. Christ would and did lay down his life and take it up again. For the message of the cross is foolishness 
to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is weakness to this world, even foolishness. But we know that our Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after our skin is destroyed, we know that in our flesh we shall see God. Christ, who is God, who was once dead, now lives by the power of God and offers us fellowship with him. The ability to fellowship with God Almighty is central and unique to the historic Christian faith. There is no other religion that offers the promise of communing with God. Christ works his strength through our weakness. Paul wrote about this in the previous chapter in verse 9. He said, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Also in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Paul again shows the Corinthians the gospel and the power of Christ and how to live in his power. It is through our weakness. God generally doesn't choose the wisest, most attractive, most successful, or wealthiest people to carry out his work here on earth. He chooses broken clay pots. He does this so that he gets the glory, not man. Look at the bride of Christ, us, the church. No amount of persecution has destroyed the church. No earthly efforts of man have kept the church together, though, either. The church is Christ's. He alone sustains it. As the church, he uses us, the foolish and weak things, to reach the lost. Verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus is in you unless you are disqualified? Paul tells the Corinthians to examine themselves to see if they are Christians. Test themselves. Are they living the Christian life of following after Christ? Are they living in obedience? Are they keeping fellowship with other Christians? Are they being a hearer of the word and not a doer? Paul's playing off of verse 3. Essentially, Paul is saying, since you seek proof of Christ in me, prove to yourself that Christ is in you. As Christians, we do have ways of knowing that Christ is in us, and that we are in Christ and he is in us. We experience the Holy Spirit, his guidance, and his joy. But we also experience conviction of sin and righteousness. We have times of closeness with God. We have fellowship, or koinonia in the Greek, with his church, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Self-examination is important in the life of the believer. Doubts and questions about God and our faith, they're part of the Christian experience. It's normal. For those of you who wrestle with doubts or sin, don't let anyone tell you you're not a Christian. If you feel far from God, don't doubt your faith. You're eternally secure in Christ, and Christ is in you. There are those who will say if you haven't experienced something in the faith that they have, whether speaking in tongues or hearing from God, 
or whatever, that you're not a true believer. These are lies. As a Christian, you are secure in Christ. In John 17, in Gethsemane, Jesus declared, those whom you gave me, I have kept. This statement was about his disciples, but it applies to you as well. Church, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Not life, not death, not anything else in all of creation can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. Paul follows this question with a curious phrase, unless indeed you are disqualified. The King James translates disqualified as reprobate or a sinner destined for hell. It carries the idea of someone who's cast away. The ESV translates this phrase as, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. This is unpleasant, if not shameful. There were people in the Corinthian church who were not Christians. The fact is that there's those who attend church regularly, faithful even, but not sincerely. They might be faithful to be at church every Sunday, but they have no faith in Christ. Perhaps it's because they consider church as a good thing. Maybe it's something, that's what we do on Sundays. Maybe it's to make business contacts. And most vulgar, they go to church to get a date. <laughs> there are those, these are those that fail the test. We must remember, though, they're not lost, not yet. Christ is available to them. Salvation is available to them. In chapter 6 of this epistle, Paul wrote, Now is the day of salvation. Writing to the Romans, he said, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 6, But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Paul knows that some of the Corinthians will pass the test. They will see that Christ is in, is in them, and that has direct implications. If the Corinthians were Christians, they had to have received the message of Christ through Paul. This indicates that Paul is a true apostle and therefore not disqualified. The Corinthians' faith proves that Paul passed the test. Verse 7, Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. Paul is expressing his desire that the Corinthians abstain from sin. It's vitally important to see Paul's motive. It's not to make himself look good. He's willing to look disqualified as a Christian if the church does what is honorable. Paul is expressing true Christian love here. He's willing to look bad or to appear as though he is disqualified so they will live according to God's will for them. Paul wrote something very similar to the church in Philippi. He wrote, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interest of others. This is an essential part of our lives as Christians. We, we experience joy at seeing another believer walk faithfully with the Lord 
and we're happy to esteem others as greater than ourselves. Thankfully, we don't accomplish this through our own strength. The ability to put others before ourselves comes from the Holy Spirit. This verse in 2 Corinthians also provides a picture of Christ. All through his passion, he appeared as a criminal before the people and suffered the death of a criminal. Jesus appeared disqualified, even though he lived a sinless life. The Son of the living God died to save you so that you can live the life Paul is, is describing to the Corinthians by doing what is honorable. Verse 8, For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Paul is powerless against the truth, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't want any power bestowed to him by men. It, wouldn't, it would not profit him. Paul looked only to Christ for his strength, which was made perfect in his weakness. Paul knew, that those, Paul knew that those who have the truth of Christ on their side have everything they need. As Paul was unable to go against the gospel, he also knew that through Christ, he could not compromise its truth. And instead, he would relentlessly preach and teach it, no matter the cost. We see evidence of this in Paul's tribulations. He listed them in chapter 11. He describes being whipped by the Jews five times, each time receiving 39 lashings. He was beaten three times with rods or sticks. Basically, he was caned. Once he was even stoned, which usually resulted in death. Paul was shipwrecked three times. One of them resulted in spending a day and a night in the sea. Paul's journeys always involved a great deal of danger. He described them writing, In perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Paul truly lived the life of a man who could not go against the gospel. This was a direct result of his encounter with the risen Savior on the road to Damascus. Verse 9, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray that you may, you may be made complete. Paul builds on what he wrote in verse 4. Paul at times can be sarcastic, but not here. He is sincerely glad to be weak so that the Corinthians can be strong. The kind of strength Paul referred to here is a strong commitment to the gospel. John Calvin states that Paul means that the Corinthians will be strong if they are full of the power and grace of God. Paul continues by demonstrating that he esteems the Corinthians above himself. Paul desire, desires that his converts will do well and live the Christian life to its fullest. This is a beautiful thing about our faith. When we walk with our Lord, we want to see other Christians thrive. It's hard to watch a fellow Christian struggle in their faith. But we know that God will work in them as we exhort them in the grace that is only found in Christ. 
Now Paul goes on that he prays for them to be made complete. The word is translated as restoration and mature in the ESV and the NASB, respectively. Essentially, Paul is praying for the Corinthians' sanctification. Now, sanctification is a word that's generally only heard in church. It simply means becoming more like Christ. Sanctification begins at the moment of salvation and progresses throughout our life, and it's it is made complete when we are in eternity with Christ. Sanctification, however, can be painfully slow. A Christian can struggle with the same sins over and over and what seems like forever. But rest assured, when you look back on your life and your walk with Christ, you'll see how he has delivered you from sin. You'll see that the sins you used to struggle with are no longer an issue in your life. And that should bring you great joy and thankfulness for the work that Christ has done in your life. The path to Christian maturity that Paul is speaking of does not happen by accident. There are certain practices that lead to growth in the Christian life. First, it begins by cultivating a life of prayer. In prayer, we get to talk to God. We boldly go before the throne of grace. Prayer is another way to spend time with Christ. Paul in 1 Thessalonians exhorts them, pray without ceasing. Another important practice is spending time reading the Bible, spending time in God's word. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Reading the Bible is how God speaks to us. It's his word and his manual for life. Being part of a church of a church where the word is taught is essential to Christian flourishing. Hebrews 10 tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. By being here this morning, I can see that you're all doing it very well. <laughs> Gathering together is not a social activity. The New Testament calls it koinonia. It can't be translated into one single English word. Koinonia carries the idea of a close association involving mutual interests and sharing. But even still, this lacks the full meaning of what Paul is referring to. Koinonia is more than spending time or eating with, with one another. Koinonia can best be described as mutual participation. But it's not participation as a team or a group. It's more. As Christians, our identity in Christ is inseparable from our identity in the body of Christ. The last part of maturing as a Christian is developing a life of repentance, actively turning from our sin and bringing, bringing our line of thinking in line with God's. Practicing these habits will lead to a richer life in Christ. Verse 10, Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Paul explains the purpose of this epistle. He wants the Corinthians to come to their senses and walk faithfully with Christ. He tells the church he wrote a harsh letter so he wouldn't have to use harsh discipline on his upcoming visit. Paul didn't want to arrive at the church with rod in hand, so to speak, 
Paul wanted his time with the Corinthians to be a time he could build them up and exhort them in the faith. Paul again takes time to reiterate that his apostleship is from the Lord, not from, from man. Paul wants to show restraint on this upcoming third visit. He's behaving like a loving father. As a father, he puts his spiritual children's needs and interests above his own. He would be content to go hungry while his children feasted. He's shown his children the error of their ways and lets them know he expects some changes. If not, they would be in deep trouble when he got there. Paul, like any loving father, he didn't want to have to do that. He wanted to steer them up to love and good works. Now we see Paul's benediction and final greetings in verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God, the God of love and peace will be with you. Paul does something important here. He calls the Corinthians brethren. This is an act meant to show fellowship. He's not casting them off. The first epistle and this epistle contain some sharp rebukes. In 1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul explains there is a time to break fellowship, and it's with a false Christian or an unrepentant Christian. He wrote, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. When Paul uses the word brethren, he demonstrates it's not time to break fellowship. It's time to turn from false teaching. It's time to turn from sin. It's a time to, be, it's a time to repent, be restored, restored, and mature in Christ. After the farewell, Paul's first instruction is become complete. He's repeating what he wrote in verse 9. Paul knew the importance of being mature in Christ. We ought, to desire, we ought to desire to grow in Christ and become mature Christians. Peter also knew the importance of Christian growth. In his first epistle, he wrote, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Next, Paul says, be of good comfort. The ESV translates this as comfort one another. This is vital to Christian fellowship or koinonia. To repeat, it's more than going to church together or breaking bread together. It's mutual involvement in the body of Christ. We comfort each other because we have the same indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we can relate to one another in ways other people can't. We have the Spirit of God living in us, and therefore we can be closer than blood relatives. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus confirms this. In chapter 12, there's a story where Jesus is speaking to the multitudes. His biological mother and brothers want to speak to him. Somebody tells Jesus about this, and he, his response is to ask the crowd who his mother and brothers are. Answering his own question, he says, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
We are brothers and sisters in fellowship with one another and with Christ. This fellowship ought to lead us to comfort one another with the love of Christ. Now Paul says, be of one mind and live in peace. This speaks to Christian unity. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul wrote, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity in the church is critical. It shows the outside world there's something different here. We must remember to major on the majors and minor on the minors. It's important for us not to get caught up squabbling about minor doctrinal issues. As long as a person or a church confesses orthodox Christian truth, we can agree to disagree on the minors. If you wonder what the majors are, the Apostles' Creed does a really good job of explaining it. It goes, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his, holy, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. In case you're wondering, the, uh, the word Catholic in the creed there does not mean the Roman Catholic Church. It means the universal Christian church. Verse 11 carries a promise that we can lay a hold of. Paul told the Corinthians, be complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. As we mature in Christ, as we comfort one another, as we experience Christian unity, the love and peace of God will be with us. That's a pretty great reward. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. Nope, 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 just don't. Don't even think about it. <laughs> in all seriousness, this was a cultural thing. Uh, some countries in Europe and places like Australia still practice it. Um, here, we don't. A holy kiss would be more akin to like a handshake between men or a hug between women. Uh, in the Corinthian culture, a holy, Chris, uh, holy kiss was a greeting that showed respect. It was never erotic. Verse 13, all the saints greet you. While this is a sincere greeting, it's also a reminder that the, Chris, the Corinthians were part of the universal church. And as such, other churches would surely know what was happening in Corinth. The saints mentioned would be waiting and watching, hoping for the church to become complete and living in unity through Christ. Paul ends his second letter to the Corinthians writing, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Paul leaves the Corinthians with the Trinity. He also leaves you with the Trinity. By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been saved and made alive in Christ. It's no longer you who lives, but it's Christ who lives in you. 
The love of God the Father is what sent the Son so that you might be saved. The Father's love has bestowed the gift of being called the child of God upon you. In his love, God has given you the helper, the spirit of truth, who will abide with you and not forsake you. The communion of the Holy Spirit will last forever. By grace, through faith, you can experience koinonia with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. It is because of love and the gift of grace that you have fellowship with the God of very God, the man Christ Jesus. The Corinthians were a troubled bunch. They struggled with sin of all types. They fought, they fought amongst each other. They talked bad about each other. They got drunk at church. They bit the hand that fed them. They wallowed in sexual sin. But know this. Christ still loved them. He still saved them and called them to repentance through his servant Paul. Jesus is still in the business of saving people and sanctifying his people. For this, we praise his holy name and we give him all the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and its instruction that it provides for us. Lord, I pray as we go about our week that your word will stay afresh in our mind and we will be listening to your Holy Spirit and glorifying your son, Jesus. Amen.